You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Acts chapter 12. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful for your presence with us here now this morning. And we ask that by your spirit, you would teach us as we give attention to your word and your voice. We love you, Jesus. And we ask that you'd speak among us now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to Acts chapter 12, I'm, I've still got it on my mind what we spoke about last week at the end of Acts chapter 11. And I, I know that there's some people here, you're not with us week to week, traveling or you're visiting or whatever, but it's really impressed on my mind what we saw last week. Acts chapter 11, at the end of the chapter, the founding of this dynamic, organic work of God in Antioch, that, that was, um, it was an amazing outpouring of God's spirit and a spiritual awakening in a very pagan place. God was doing something very new but very exciting there in Antioch. And I said a few words about the church in Jerusalem last week. I got to say, I kind of, if anything, I sort of cast that work in Jerusalem in a negative light. And today I kind of want to apologize to you and to those saints that are in heaven now. But but because, you know, we we have Acts chapter 12 and it's sort of saying, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, what was happening back there? And look, I believe that there was sort of a headquarters mentality. I have criticisms from the text of the book of Acts at the ideas of the apostles and sort of what they did in staying put in Jerusalem when Jesus called them to go out to the uttermost parts of the earth. But I will tell you this. They had their own challenges to deal with in Jerusalem. They had their own difficulties. And we're going to look at that right now. Look at it right here in verse one. It just hits us like an explosion where it says now about that time, Herod, the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Herod, the king there in Jerusalem. Now, this was Herod Agrippa, the first. He was the grandson of Herod, the great. Remember Herod, the great, the guy who tried to kill Jesus as a child. And he was the nephew of uh, Herod Antipas. He was the one who helped send Jesus to the cross. What a great family line this Herod comes from, right? And listen, he carries on in the evil tradition of his forefathers, both his grandfather and his uncle, in stretching out his hand against God's people at this time and this place. And this Herod the king, this wicked man, again, he stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Notice now verse 2, then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And why did he do this? Well, we're going to find out later. He he did this not out of some high-minded theology. He he wasn't a sincerely wrong man, as you might say, of Saul of Tarsus, a previous persecutor of the church, right? Saul of Tarsus was wrong, wrong, wrong in his persecution of the church. Nevertheless, he was sincere, right? Right? I mean, he actually thought he was doing something good for God. Herod, he did it purely out of political motives. Purely. He wanted to please the people that he ruled over. He believed that it would please some of the Jewish people that he ruled over if he persecuted Christians, and therefore he persecuted Christians. Now, many political figures 
are ready to attack or to persecute Christians if it'll make them popular. It was true in the first century. I suppose it's true today, is it not? Isn't this just some of what we have to live with if we're going to name the name of Christ, right? That, that we'll be vilified, that we'll be attacked, that, that in some places of the world, thankfully not yet in the United States, but in some places of the world, actually be persecuted by political leaders who, who don't really care about what you believe. They'll persecute you or attack you just to score political points. It'll make them popular with their constituency. Happened then, happens now. But then verse 2 tells us, as we read before, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Friends, this was an earth-shaking event because James is the first of the 12 who followed Jesus to be martyred. Isn't that strange? 12 men followed Jesus. And persecution come on the church floor. Oh, please understand, this was not the first martyr. The first martyr was Stephen, right? Way back in Acts chapter 7 and 8. Not the first martyr, but he definitely was the first of the apostles to die a martyr's death. And I think it's especially, I don't know the right word, poignant, touching, moving, that it was James. You know, James in particular, we might have thought that he would enjoy some special protection from God. I mean, after all, wasn't he one of the special intimates of Jesus? What were those three guys close to Jesus so often, right? Peter, James, and John. And this was the same James. Well, certainly one of that three of the inner circle, God would certainly have some special protection for him, but seemingly not. Remember that Jesus promised no special protection for his followers. He warned them to be ready for persecution. If you've come to Jesus because you thought he would shield you from all the problems in this world, you're, I don't know what to say. It's just not true. Matter of fact, and, and I don't mean to overly discourage anybody, but I'll say it. You will face some new problems in your life because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus didn't promise to, to, to relieve us from all the problems of the world. Well, what did he say? He said, in the world, you will have tribulation. Now, that's, that's a promise of Jesus we don't think much about, do we? But what did he say after that? He said, but be of good cheer. For I have overcome the world. And some of this tribulation came upon James. You know, in Mark chapter 10, John and his brother James came to Jesus and they asked to be considered two of his chief lieutenants. Jesus, make us number one and number two in your kingdom. And Jesus challenged them when he asked that. And he challenged them. He said, now, listen, you two, are you ready to drink the cup that I drink? Are you ready to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And what he was referring to was his coming suffering. He basically was looking John and James in the eye and saying, are you guys ready to suffer like I suffer in my life, in my ministry? And you know what James and John said? They said, sure, Jesus, we're ready. They didn't really know what they were saying. But now James was living some of that, right? I find it interesting. His brother John was the only one of the 12 who followed Jesus. I'm accepting Judas from this, of course. The only one of the 12 who followed Jesus who did not die a martyr's death, though not for trying. They tried to martyr him, but he wouldn't die. That's another story. 
John was the only one who did not die a martyr's death. James was the first one to die a martyr. The cup that Jesus gives us to drink, the baptism that he gives us to be baptized with in the sense of enduring suffering. Listen, it might be different in the life of one person than another, but God gives each person what he has ordained and what he has allowed. It's an earth-shaking event. James dies by the You can imagine what repercussions is made on the, on the, among the Christians there in Jerusalem. So now look at what happens starting at verse 3. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. You see, verse 3 tells us that Herod noticed that what he did to kill James pleased the people, and he saw his popularity ratings going up, right? The focus groups came back with good news, and he said, good, I'll do more of this persecution of the Christians. If it made them happy that I killed uh, James, just wait until I get my hands upon Peter also. So he rested him, and verse 4 tells us that he had to wait until after the Passover because you couldn't have a public execution right there uh, during those days of Passover. And so he decided to deal with Peter at a politically opportune time right after the Passover. And verse 4 tells us that he delivered him to four squads of soldiers. That's very impressive because each one of these squads of soldiers would be four soldiers in a squad. So over an entire day, there's 16 soldiers guarding Peter under a high, high security. He would be chained to two soldiers. Normally, a Roman prisoner might be just chained to one soldier. Don't you think that's enough security to be actually chained to a soldier? No, that's not enough. Chain him to two soldiers, and then you have two other soldiers to keep watch. Man, that's a very comprehensive sort of guard, right? But what was happening in the midst of all of that, verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Isn't that a great contrast? But what's the power that Herod has? Herod has chains and prisons and soldiers and iron gates to hold Peter in. What's the power that the church has? Prayer. I'll tell you, you might take Herod's weapons, right? You might say, well, Herod's weapons, that's the battle to fight with. No, no, no. Look at what the church can do with its weapons. It says simply that prayer was offered to God for him by the church. The church was free to pray. That's what the church could do, right? You may say, well, that's all we can do. Well, listen, that's a great thing to be able to do. Every other gate was shut and locked, but the gate to heaven was wide open for the church, and they took advantage of that open gate by appealing to God in prayer. As a matter of fact, the wording there in verse 5 is very interesting, where it says, constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. That ancient Greek word that's translated constant in the New King James Version, it has the idea of being earnest, of being serious. Matter of fact, the ancient Greek word means something that is stretched out to the fullest extremity. I mean, think of somebody reaching for something with everything that they can, right? A prisoner reaching for keys that are on a, you know, 
floor or something like that. Or a child reaching for a cookie, right? Or something like that. They were stretched out as far as they could, earnestly praying. They prayed earnestly. You know what? That is a great, great secret to the power of prayer. Is to pray. Can I say it? To pray like you mean it. Much of our prayer is powerless because it lacks earnestness. Maybe I'll just speak for myself. But sometimes I pray and I find myself just not caring very much as I pray. I just I just don't care. Look, I I got a prayer list. I pray for things. I was like, well, Lord, do this, do that, do the other thing. And my heart isn't in it. I'm not engaged. I'm not thinking about the seriousness of the matter. My heart isn't stirred. Now, 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 sometimes some tragedy will come up or somebody near and dear will be afflicted in a certain way and your heart is just stirred in a unique way and you know what I'm talking about there. Then suddenly the earnestness comes up, right? You're earnest in a way. And I think, why am I not earnest about more things like that? Sometimes I catch myself praying with an attitude of wanting God to care for something, because I don't really care all that much about it. But earnest power has prayer. When we bear our heart before God, when we're desperate before Him, it has power, not because it persuades a reluctant God. Friends, that's not what prayer is about. It's like God doesn't really want to do something, but if you're like an annoying teenager with a parent, you can kind of nag him into doing what he never really wanted to do. Prayer doesn't work like that. Prayer works when our heart is in sync with God's heart. And when God really cares about something, and when we really care about something, and when we appeal to God with that caring heart of prayer, then we see him do great things. And that was the great secret of prayer here in Acts chapter 12, verse 5. Earnest, constant, stretched out. You could say agonizing prayer from the church. And you can imagine how the church felt, right? Oh, Lord, we just lost James. We don't want to lose Peter, too. Oh, Lord, we can't explain why James just lost his life so suddenly it came out of left field. Maybe they didn't have time to organize prayer meetings for it, but they had time for Peter. And so they're praying earnestly for Peter and saying, Lord, what will you do? And what would the Lord do? Well, let's see, starting at verse 8. And when Herod was about to bring him out, by the way, can it bring him out? Not for a walk around the prison. Bring him out to execute him, right? Whatever happens in the next several verses, please keep in mind, it happened at the last minute. It happened when Herod was about to bring him out. Okay, Starting again, verse 6. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did, and he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. 
And they went out and went down on the street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Isn't that wonderful? I love how it begins there. Verse 6, Peter's sleeping. Isn't that great? The night before his execution, and what is he doing? He's sleeping. You know, later on, Peter would write in one of his letters, that we should cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. I don't know how many of you could sleep, not only sleep, but sleep so soundly that an angel in the room wouldn't wake you up and the angel had to poke you and kick you to sort of wake you up. That's sound sleeping, folks. Peter slept so soundly, was so at peace with his soul. I, I hope you are. I hope you are so at peace in your soul with the state of your heart and life before God that that you could sleep on the night before you knew you were going to die. If you're not there, you can be. You can put your faith in Jesus Christ and you can have that gift of assurance from him, that gift of assurance that tells you you do belong to him and heaven is your destination. Peter had that assurance, right? He could sleep that soundly. The angel comes and wakes him up, and he had to wake him up. Verse 6 says that he was bound with two chains between two soldiers, but but the chains and the guards and the prison doors, all of that meant nothing to God and to his appointed messengers. Peter was instantly set free, right? The chains were a problem. No, not anymore. The guards were a problem. No, not anymore. The prison door was a problem. No, not anymore. And all the while, it wasn't because Peter figured out something. This wasn't some kind of mission impossible, you know, action movie escape from a prison. Peter staggered through it, not even knowing that he was actually really doing. He was sort of sleepwalking through the whole thing. Verse 9 tells us that he did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. He obeyed without really knowing what was happening. But but he knew enough to sense that God was doing something. The explanation would come later. So he just followed the angel. And I love what it says in verse 10. He came to this iron gate that leads to the city. Can you just see him? He's free from the chains. He's free from the guards. He's free from his prison cell. They stagger out past one guard post, past another guard post. They're there as if they're invisible to everybody in the prison. But there you are. There's the iron gate. Great. Now what do we do? Everything before has been great. But but with the iron gate there, what can you do? I think it's interesting. We we worry about such things, right? Oh, yeah, God may do this, but the iron gate, mm, that's probably too tough. And then what happens with the iron gate? It's wonderful. That says, verse 10, it says that they came to the iron gate, which leads to the city, and it opened to them of its own accord. The ancient Greek word that's translated there in that phrase, of its own accord, it's the ancient Greek word, atomate. It opened automatically for him, right? It was an automatically opening gate, right? I don't know if the angel had a little, you know, clicker in his hand or something like that. But right there, opened just like an automatic gate before him. And they walked right out of it because God had appointed him to be delivered. And it says right there in verse 11 that Peter understood. Look at what he said in verse 11. He said, and he has delivered me from the hand of Herod. Now, I can't say I know this for sure, but, but I wonder if when Peter said that, there was an emphasis on the word me. He delivered me from the hand of it. It's almost he's asking, delivered me. 
Why me? James was martyred. I'm rescued. Why? Why me? Listen, the reasons why God does one such thing and another thing in another circumstance, friends, don't you understand that it's really known to him? Is anybody going to say here, is anybody going to stand up and say, well, God loved Peter more than James. That's why he rescued Peter. No. Is anybody going to say that Peter was more righteous, more deserving, uh, less mistake prone than James? Nobody could say that about Peter, right? Nobody. Nobody could say, well, you know, the church prayed for Peter and the church didn't care that much about James, so that's why he died. No. Friends, can't you see that God alone knows? Can anybody say that God was unfaithful to James? No. He was faithful to James, and I'm sure James died with that glorious courage of a martyr because God gave him strength to see it through to the end. And I'm sure in whatever way it was that the death of James was a testimony to people around him. A matter of fact, according to ancient uh, historian, that, 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 that James's last testimony there before the guards what was so striking before the officials that the man who guarded him confessed Christ and ended up being executed alongside of him. Now, friends, that's the glorious work of God in a man like James. And this is the glorious work of God in a man like Peter. And if you're expecting me to say, well, well, I can tell right now this is going to be a James and this is going to be, I don't know. All I can say is that we bring it before the Lord, right? And we say, Lord, no matter what, we want to glorify you. No matter what, we're going to serve you. If you want us to serve you like a James, then we'll do it and be patient and faithful and serve you in the midst of whatever suffering you have. If you mean us to be faithful like a Peter and trust you and see you do a glorious rescue in our life, then we'll receive that. But God is faithful and God will be glorified no matter what. I'll tell you where we get tripped up, folks. We get tripped in this. We start worrying about what God is doing or will do in the lives of others, right? God, what, why don't you do that in my life? You, you did that for them. Why don't you do it for me? Now look, it's not wrong for you to ask God that, but you've got to understand that his life, his plan, his, his role, his work in your life could be very different than somebody else. Can you bow your knee before the sovereign God and say, Lord, I'll submit to that. I'll trust that your plan for my life might be different than the plan for the life of somebody else, but I'll receive that and I'll accept it and I'll grab hold of that. I think that's all wrapped up when Peter said he delivered me from the hand of Herod. Simply said, wouldn't we say that it wasn't time for Peter to go to his heavenly home yet? Until it was time, Peter was invulnerable. He couldn't be harmed. It was time for James. It wasn't time for Peter. That's a heavy situation, so I think God gives us a little lighter note starting here in verse 12. I love the story. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she didn't open the gate. 
but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said, you're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it's his angel. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought them, brought him out of prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Isn't that a great story? Peter gets out. And I love what it says there in verse 12. So when he had considered this, he thought a long time about what it meant that he was delivered. But he came out and he went to the place where he knew Christians would be gathering, right? They'd be gathering at the home of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, John Mark. So he went there. Christians would be gathered. Christians would be praying. He said, well, they they want to know what the result of the prayer was. I'll go there. I'll be a living answer to prayer right there to show these other believers what God has done. So he goes there. He knocks on the gate and this girl comes out, Rhoda. Wouldn't you love to see this scene enacted out, right? Just as it was. I don't know how old she was. You might think kind of young, right? Don't you kind of have, you might 12, 13, 14 years old, right? She runs out to the gate. Well, who is it? Hey, it's me, Peter. Let me in. And she's so excited. It's Peter. She turns her back on him and runs back in the house. Doesn't even think to let him in. Peter's thinking, you know what? The alarm's going to go off in that prison pretty soon. And they're going to start searching. I wish somebody would let me in. So he keeps knocking while Rhoda runs inside the house. It's Peter, it's Peter. And what do those amazing faith-filled Christians who have been praying for Peter's release tell Rhoda? Are you crazy? He's in prison. Now get back so we can pray for him to be released. Isn't that wonderful? Now doesn't it, don't you find some comfort in that? That you know what? They didn't have as much faith as maybe we think they did. Right? The answer to prayer was right. I don't know how many times you've done this all the time. I mean, God answered prayer and we're shocked. We're surprised. It's all, what? I mean, like, how could that ever happen? I think sometimes God and the angels just must smile when we act so surprised that he answers prayer. But that's exactly what they did. But listen, doesn't it show us that it's more important to have a little bit of faith in the true God than it is to have massive amounts of faith in the wrong God, an idol? in a misrepresentation of God, or worse yet, faith in yourself. That whole faith in yourself thing, how's that working out for you? Oh, please. If the whole message of your life is believe in yourself, right? Have faith in yourself. Can I just call you away from that this morning? Put your faith in Jesus. And so, it's him, it's him, no, it's not him. But she insists, no, I know it's him. Oh, it's just his angel. Uh, Apparently, they had beliefs among some of the Jews that day that guardian angels of a person could could resemble a person. Oh, it must be his angel or something like, no, go out there. And they keep hearing this knocking outside because Peter, he's probably pounding on the door. Let me in now. And so finally, they let him in and they're astonished. They're astonished, but it was true. God had answered the prayer and released Peter unto him. Verse 17 tells us that he departed and went to another place, except for a very brief mention in Acts 15. That's the last that Luke speaks of Peter. Now, Peter will later meet Paul in Antioch. We know that from Galatians chapter 2, and he writes his two letters. But friends, there's not much more about Peter in the book of Acts. It's very sad how this little section ends. Verse 18 
Then, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And then he went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. It's sad to think about, isn't it? It's sad to think that that soldiers who were completely innocent, they were murdered by this horrible man, Herod, because God delivered Peter. I tell you, it shows us something, though. It shows us that when a tyrant stretches out his hand to persecute the people of God, sometimes those who, who aren't followers of Jesus Christ, sometimes they'll support him in it, right? They shouldn't. Because even though that tyrant who stretches out his hand against the people of God, it begins with the people of God, it never ends there, right? And he'll stretch out his hand against others as well. And these poor men, who no fault of their own, they were executed. Well, God will deal with Herod, verse 20. Now, Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. This was a territory north there in what's today is modern-day Lebanon. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them, and the people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Ouch, did you know that that was even in the Bible? Herod goes and he gives a speech to these formerly disaffected people under his reign. And as he gives a speech and they're so anxious to curry favor with Herod that they start shouting out, the voice of God and not of man, by the way, If you're interested, Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian who wrote for mainly a Roman audience, not a Christian audience at all, but a Roman audience, but he was a first century historian, he documents this almost the same exactly as the biblical text in his work Antiquities. In any regard, there's Josephus there describing it and Luke describing it, how Herod speaks before the people and the people start shouting out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And what does he do? He starts drinking it in, right? The text tells us right there that he did not give glory to God and God struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Some of you may be itching for me to make a modern political application. (laughs) I will not do so. But I will try to make a personal application. I think about our community and our congregation. I think about it when I stand before a congregation here in Santa Barbara, I'm speaking to a good number of successful people. Really, you guys are sharp. You men and women, you're high achievers. You're notable in your fields and you've worked hard and you've got yourself the credentials. And many have been very successful. And somehow, some way, that voice comes to you, maybe not quite that blatantly, but almost. And it says to you, the, the smarts of a God and not of a man. 
The, the, the business sense of a God and not of a man. The hard work of a God and not of a man. And there's things that come to your life that want to puck you up and tell you how glorious and how successful you are. Can I just tell you, give glory to God. Submit yourself to him. I don't despise your success and neither should you. You should glory in God, rightly so, for your success. Your success is not a bad thing. Matter of fact, God probably has used it and wants to use it for greater and greater glory for for his world in general and for his kingdom in particular. Your success isn't the problem, but your pride could very well be. So I appeal to you, successful men, successful women. Maybe you very rarely have somebody who will speak to you face to face and say, hey, With all your success, give glory to God. Submit yourself to him. Maybe you're not used to taking orders from people. Well, I'm certainly not expecting you to take orders from me, but I would expect you to take orders from God. Submit yourself to him. Give glory to God. Don't get eaten by worms. Verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Friends, do you see that glorious result there in verse 24? The word of God grew and multiplied. The, the contrast between Herod and the church was clear. Herod believed that he had the upper hand, right? Herod felt like he could do well, I'll execute James. Oh, look what I'll do to Peter. Man, I'm going to show the world a lesson. But God knew how to deal with Herod, right? Herod's stock, believe it or not, his stock was crashing through the floor. The church, the word of God grew and multiplied. Herod fought against God. He killed James, but he didn't defeat God's plan. He arrested Peter, but the earnestly praying church saw God rescue Peter and the apostles' work continue. Herod, even if you kill James, you haven't won anything. Even if you imprison Peter, nothing's going to come of it. You can't fight against God and win. I'll tell you, friends, history is filled with the stories of men who thought that they could fight God and succeed. But their ruined lives are evidence of the fact that you can never win when you fight against God. Friedrich Nietzsche was the philosopher. He coined the idea that God was dead and that Christianity was a despised religion of weaklings. Fighting God drove Nietzsche insane, and he spent the last several years of his miserable life in that condition. Sinclair Lewis, he he was at the top of his profession. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and he fought against God in his book, Elmer Gantry, right? The book was all about an evangelist who was also an alcoholic and who would sleep with any woman that he could. Sinclair Lewis died a hopeless alcoholic in a clinic near Rome. The writer, Ernest Hemingway, he lived a life of adventure and sin against God, seemingly without consequences, until he shot himself in the head with a shotgun. Friends, fighting against God doesn't work. Herod displays it. But God's word, look at it there in verse 24, the word of God grew and multiplied. The word of God and the work of God, it goes on. That's why you need to get yourself in line with God's word and God's work. Isn't that it at the end of it? A true success 
connects himself with the things that last and live forever. God's word, God's work, that endures, that goes on. And at the end of it all, I don't know why, and you don't know why, honestly, why God appoints some to finish their days as a Herod would, others to be rescued like Peter would, but we'll serve him and honor him and give him glory and look at his plan for our life more than his plan for somebody else's life more than anything else. Friends, can you, can you just say that this morning we're going to recommit ourselves to surrender to this great God, right? And his great plan for your life. Stop fighting against it. Stop resisting it. Understand that it's good and he'll work it out in and through his merciful way in your life. I'm going to pray to that end right now. Would you pray with me?